Welcome to In The Room, where we explore the elusive world of casting for film, TV, and commercials. Join us as we interview directors, writers, producers, and actors, taking a deep dive into their experiences with casting and how the ultimate decisions are made in bringing a story to the screen. Get an inside look at casting and find out what really goes on in the room. Some people can see all your mistakes. The way you hold it in your shoulders, show it in your face. Lewis, I'm John. Your mother was a good woman. Listen, your grandparents, they asked me if I'd give you a lift. They don't love the idea of you riding on this bus for three days. You wanna drive? Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, now keep the engine running. Don't turn it off for any reason, you understand? Go. Go, 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 go. And today we have the wonderful director, Trey Nelson, who is a wonderful friend. Trey has directed and written feature documentaries, television shows, and commercials. His work has been featured in, at festivals around the world, including the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival, where he premiered his documentary, 14 Minutes from Earth. In 2016, he wrote and directed the feature film, Lost in the Sun, starring Josh Duhamel. It was praised as one of the most beautiful and best acted independent films of the year. His most recent feature documentary, The Fifth Man, won directing awards at the 2021 Stony Brook Film Festival, Rhode Island International Film Festival, and Best Story at the Boston Film Festival. Filmmaker Magazine celebrated him as one of those remarkable documentaries that tells an intimate story uh, but uses it as a springboard to tell the story of an entire era, one of the best films I've seen so far this year. Currently, he is a creative advisor at Tustoria, an AI creative assistant for fast and delightful video productions, and he is a good friend and a work colleague, and so we uh, welcome you to the show. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's let's start in the beginning. Where did the filmmaking, uh, where did it start for you? You you were born with a camera in your hand? No, I... um, I guess like the film Lost in the Sun, I was a little, I was lost for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I grew up in Dallas, um, and then I went to school in a college in upstate New York, and got a job out in San Francisco, and lived in San Francisco. I had a corporate job in San Francisco. I worked for Gap Incorporated. John, did I ever tell you that? No, story? you didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. I was a corporate. I was a corporate. I was a corporate like cog in the wheel for many years. But what I was doing on the side was like writing, and I took like these screenwriting courses. I I never like filmed anything. I made a lot of like art, um, a lot of photographs and things like that, and then. I had a death in my family in, in 2000. And I just, you know, I think it's those moments in your life when you have to decide, like, what do you want to do with your life? Often you have like these different kind of like chapters in your life when you want to do what you want to do. And, um, I, I grew up around artists my entire life. My mom's an artist, my dad's an artist. And I was kind of like pretending to be this corporate like guy who, wanted security and money and like all of this stuff, but I was miserable. Mm -hmm. So 
I uh, quit my job and I bought a sold my car, bought a backpack and a, a sleeping bag, went back to Texas and took a flight to Mexico City and hung around in Mexico City for a little bit and then took another flight down to Costa Rica and then hung around Costa Rica for a little bit until um, I was hiking uh, one day and uh, I was, while I was hiking sort of like in central Costa Rica, I was attacked by a pack of wild dogs. <laughs> um, I know it's crazy. And they like, is they this when the, it was this the ayahuasca kicked in or was it? <laughs> this was, this was all a complete fabrication of my mind. No, it wasn't. Um, yeah, I was attacked by a pack of wild dogs in Costa Rica and it kind of ended my trip. And this was in, uh, the, this was in May of 2001. So I had to come back. They wouldn't give me rabies shots. We're not talking about film. We're talking about life, right? So like, yeah, yeah, this is film, film is life, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I came back to the States. I got some rabies shots um, and I had to hang out. And I uh, I borrowed my grandmother's uh, Ford Escort and I drove around the Southwest. And that's kind of where the seeds of Lost in the Sun kind of like started shaping in my head. Um Little did I know I wouldn't be making it for like another 12 years, but like that story kind of like was seated then and there. Okay, hold on. Let's unpack this a little bit. So what was it that drove you to get to do the corporate thing and try to find security? Was that something that you like as a, like went through as a, you know, your childhood? Did that kind of stem that sort of, or was it just the ideology of like where you grew up in Dallas or? Well, no, I grew up, you know, I, uh, I grew up in Oak Lawn yeah. in Dallas in the rough, 80s rough, rough neighborhood well it was back then it, man. Was? it, was, oh. it was yeah yeah i mean uh, oakland i don't know if people don't know dallas but like oakland right now is uh pretty tony and wealthy but back in the 80s and 90s um were when i when i grew up there was an immigrant it was an immigrant uh community but it was also a community filled with a lot of uh transgender gay uh people and it, the aids epidemic was like destroying Oakland back then. Um, I saw many people on the street one day and the next day they were gone and you didn't really understand why, because, you know, I was a kid, you didn't, you didn't understand that stuff. Um, so growing up in Oakland, it was, as, as a kid, it was almost like, you know, it was weird. It was weird because, you know, in the eighties and nineties, people who had AIDS, they were ostracized, right? The gay community to this day is still ostracized. Well, yeah, uh, and and it's something that you were like, if I if I touch it, or you're so everyone was so phobic yeah, about it. They were afraid. Well, well yeah. disease. Yeah. It's the idea of, of being diseased, right? And um, I didn't tell anybody I was from Oakland. I was very shameful of it. I didn't want people to know that I was from there. But as you know, as I'm you know matured and like that was like when I was thirteen or fourteen. But as I matured, it became like a source of pride, and it continues to be a source of pride for me. Um, being from that community and, and like, it was a community of artists, you know? Um, I so know, yeah, I, I did not know that. That's cool. I always thought it was yeah, like yeah, this it's, plush, it's rich, like, like a river Oaks or something in Houston or just some sort of like really, no man, yeah. it was, it was really interesting. And it's, it's actually been a backdrop for a lot of my work um, in terms of like my writing of this, um, in particular, like right now, the writing that I've, I've done more writing now 
of feature scripts in the past three years than I have in my entire career, mostly because I've had time because of the pandemic. And one, I've really wanted to commit to, um, and I started trusting my voice a lot more. I started trusting um, what it, what I can bring and what unique qualities I can bring to storytelling. Cause my, cause like where I come from and, and what my story is, is unique. And my sense of um, needing to belong and wanting to belong goes back to not feeling like I belonged when I was growing up in a gay neighborhood in the eighties and nineties being ravaged by AIDS. Yeah. So um, yeah. I mean, like I'm, a big part of my journey as an artist has to do with self-acceptance, but also trying to create a story of, um, and stories of acceptance for people. I think it's, it's, it's where we can connect. I think art, like, like I think art can heal. You could create art with your hands by painting. You create art with your mind by writing but I do think art can heal. And I think we need a lot of that right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to backtrack to one more moment. One, do you speak Spanish? Like, Por supuesto, amigo. <laughs> I don't know what you said. <laughs> See, uh, so, so when you're walking in the pack of dogs attack you, were you like, like, you know, give me a sign. Where, which, what should I do with my life? Where should I go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So like I, so I went, I went, so I went to a private school. Like I was, you know, like carpooled to a private school from Oakland to, to Northern Dallas. And it's a great, a great school that was very liberal and very inclusive um, uh, called Green Hill. And then I went to, I went to a really, uh, really white college and university where I felt like really out of place in the like new England whiteness of it all. Um, because I came from a community and a school that was like very diverse and very like growing up in Oakland, like it was like weird, but I got indoctrinated in this sort of like, you know, mind fuck that you have to go get like a real job. Right. After going to this college, I'm not going to name the college because whatever. But um, <laughs> you could do your research and find out which college it was. I made a lot of really good friends. It's, okay, it's okay to say Harvard. <laughs> it's not. It wasn't Harvard. Yeah. Um, whatever. Yale, Harvard. You know, Columbia. Whatever it was. No, it, was, it wasn't any of those. <laughs> I know. It, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it was the thing about it that it, it just sort of like um, I conformed so much, coming from like a non-conformist mentality, right? And John, I know you're not a conformist. Trust me. That's uh, no. why you and I that's why you and I are friends, is because <laughs> we just like really are in our sensibilities a little bit more punk than maybe we admit to be. But the the I I just sort of like got brainwashed and I and I jumped to like a really secure job that paid me a lot of not a lot of money, but enough money to make me feel safe, right? Now the thing about filmmaking or the thing about being an artist is you can never really you can never really feel safe. Otherwise you're, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> like you've got to be able to make art under circumstances where you have to make art. Right. Um, so I just felt like I, I was dying a little bit in this corporate job, you know? And, and, um, and I had, I had to, and I had a death on my grandmother who I was very close to died 
Um, and, and, and I just felt like I needed to explore the world. You know, I needed to have a sense of curiosity about the world. And um, I wasn't getting that sitting at a desk. Um, so, yeah, I went down to Costa Rica. And then, like, the, like getting attacked by dogs was really strange because it was, like, a really traumatic experience. And then, like, I moved to New York City and got a, <laughs> and got a basement apartment underneath the Chinese food restaurant on 15th Street. And then got one of like started working my way up as a PA and got a job on the morning of September 11th as a production assistant down on canal street and West Broadway. And they had that morning, we were doing like some car stuff and we had a trailer and they'd sent me up to go get a lens from some somewhere up on the upper West side. And as I'm listening to the radio, they start talking about the you know, September 11th attacks. And I'm going, what is going on? Um, so I took my van with the lens thinking we were still going to fucking shoot. Um, not knowing what total, the hell was going yeah, on. Yeah, total production. I mean, that was the same. It was the same for us. It was like, do we stop? What do we do? We keep going? Like, what do we do? Right, yeah. right. And I didn't know what was going on. So, like, I was the only car along with, like, the EMS and the fire trucks driving down the West Side Highway towards mm. the towers. Mm -hmm. And I got – I drove back to um, – my uh where the location was where we were planning to shoot the car stuff and like everybody was i was i was very fortunate to not have seen the buildings hit but everybody else that was there saw it so there were everybody was in a different sort of state of shock right um everybody's trying to call friends because they had friends in the buildings blah 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 you know i mean everybody's heard this story before i'm not trying to minimize it but I I called my roommate and I said, hey, let's meet up at X spot, Upper West Side, um, at a friend's apartment. Um, called called him on a on didn't have cell phone back then, but called called him on a payphone. And then I went into um when so you can look down West Broadway and Canal Street and see the Twin Towers at that at that time. And we were in a parking lot across the street from the Soho brand or one of the Soho nice Soho hotels. And I looked down West Broadway, both towers were up. And then I walked into the bathroom at the Soho grand, went to the bathroom. And as I'm walking out, all I see is a sea of human beings running towards me and a big plume of smoke, like coming right at me. And I, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, you don't know what's going on. You're trying to process all this stuff. I and mean, it's a traumatic experience. So, um, I like, we, we hung out and like helped people out of the smoke. People were like covered in white. And, um, I ended up walking all the way from, uh, Canal street, all the way up to like, uh, 125th street to my friend's apartment, um, in Amsterdam and then hung out there with my uh, roommate at the time. And then that day we just, we were lucky because they'd shut down everything below 14th street and we could walk back to our apartment underneath the Chinese food restaurant. And um, so we walked down and then we walked through central park and then walked straight down the middle of fifth Avenue, the whole way to our apartment. And it was, it was like out of a movie. It was crazy. So that was like my indoctrination into going from safe corporate world, right, to this like really this this exposure to a world that was very violent, right? 
I, I go from like this like cradle to this like oh here you are into this frying pan of life and those two experiences like being attacked by dogs and having such an intimate experience with September 11th really um those are experiences I'm still processing even 20 years later in terms of like how I relate to trauma and what it you know how I incorporate that into my art because art is a way like I said I said I think art can heal and I think those sort of stamps on my life have really informed me how um I process trauma have a curiosity about my own brain and how I interact with the world super interesting yeah crazy I was not you went from like this like that. this safe place to just complete chaos and yeah. mayhem and, oh, it was nuts, and, man. and you it was... didn't you didn't run away you ran forward you kept going like you kept saying okay I, you know like to me i'd be like i think this is a sign to move back to san francisco and get, to get, get my corporate yeah, job. Right, yeah. <laughs> but you're yeah, like yeah i mean yeah it is i think you know i mean john you you know that i'm sober right and i've been sober now for uh seven years right yes yeah. so six or seven years I don't have a, I, I do have a chip right here. I don't know about that, but I do have a, I do have a, chip, a one year chip. Um, but I have been sober for like six or seven years. And I think that that's also part of the journey is not running away from anything in your life, right? Yeah. Not running away from the difficulties. Like right now, I've been thinking a lot about the strike. And like when you drop this, the strike may be over. But I think everybody will remember what's been going on over the past couple of months and how that's created a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. But I think what's really important to remember about the strike is that like, we're all interconnected, right, in this industry. We are all codependent on each other in a way that we have to support each other. But also part of this business and the thing that you have to learn to accept is the uncertainty of it all. And it's a microcosm of life. We can pretend that we want our lives to be consistent and we're going to have constant growth and life is going to be one long summer. Well, guess what? Winter is coming. <laughs> and it comes every year and it changes. And I think part of that is, um, you know, we think of like Steven Spielberg is like this artist and this director who has had constant growth in his life as to, to, to be the director that he is. And he's super gifted. But like, does anybody ever talk about like his movie 1945? No, because it was a massive bomb, right? He's had ups and downs. Does anybody talk about um, Ready Player One? My God, no, because it was horrible, right? And it... <laughs> But we, we, we hold him in this regard because he deserves to be held in this regard. But you have to remember, even the greatest directors, artists that we have, have ups and downs. That's part of life. And it's in the downs in those like sort of troughs, which we're all sharing right now in the industry, is where you can either sit around and go, oh, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? Or you can go like, well, like, I'm going to go outside and go for a fucking hike. I'm going to walk my dog. I'm going to, I'm going to create pod, a podcast so that like I can at least keep my mind busy and maybe learn something about somebody else. It's about having a curiosity of life, not when times are going rough, but it's having curiosity. Sorry. It's, it's not about having a curiosity of life when times are easy, right? That's fucking easy. 
it's about having curiosity in life, even when things are not going your way and it's disagreeable. So that could be a good segue to the the uh, creation of Lost in the Sun because that new I know it took it took some it took some time and you fought you were able to fight a lot of uphill battles to get it get it out. So yeah, let's I, talk let's talk about the creation and and, and how that came about and and uh, that 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 process that process. Um, sure. So um. I I can't watch the movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I can't. I have a really hard time. You know how like Tom Cruise can't watch his movies? Um, I'm not saying that I'm Tom Cruise, but like <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't watch And there's the a movie. lot of guys, right? A lot of guys that can't watch themselves. But have you at least yeah, watched it once? Like after you've posted? Well, you've yeah, it, right? I mean I li- yeah. I did, I watched it. I I I have um so part yeah, I have watched it once, but like it was such a strange, ex- I mean, it was such a beautiful experience, but so also such like a strange experience. I'm going to tell another traumatic story, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'll get, I'll get there and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, it, it'll be like well, a great. Listen, I watched it the other night and fell in love with it again. It's such a beautiful, just shot so well and so much beauty and so many great people involved. So I, I, yeah, I, there's, it's easy for me to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. Um, uh, yeah, I think it, it's, so I started writing that script in, I believe it was like 2008, mm-hmm. 2008. Mm-hmm. And it took me a really long time because that was like a, that was like, um, when my kid, my first daughter was born in 2009 and my son was born in 2011. And I had to like snack on the script. Like I had to take like little bites out of it. And I also was um, working at the same time. Like I, that time in my life, I was, I I had been making feature length documentaries for like the history channel. And then um, just trying to like feed my family. Right. By like, you know, did a lot of food shows. Um, I've directed like 400 episodes of food television. Um, and so I, my career is, it, I, I really have, the one thing I'm really proud of is I really have forged my own path. You know, there's this great saying, it's like, if the path ahead of you is clear, you're likely on somebody else's. Well, let me tell you a story. I've had no fucking path in front of me on my career whatsoever. I have like a machete in one hand and like an ax in the other. And I'm like cutting down trees and macheting shit left and right, just because it's just hasn't gone that way. Right. But I've had a lot of people who have really helped me along. I hate the saying self-made person or self-made woman or self-made man or self-made they or then. We all are given gifts in our lives. And I've been given a lot of gifts in my life, including the bad stuff um, in order to tell my story. So I, I really, this, the, the, the idea really came from that drive that I took after I got attacked by the pack of wild dogs. And, and I drove through New Mexico and up into Arizona and went to the, um, um, Grand Canyon and the back through, and then like went to like a bunch of, um, uh, drive-in movie theaters along the way and like hung out and, um, just really enjoyed it. And as a child, I spent a lot of time driving back and forth between New Mexico and Dallas during my summers. So that was the inception of it. Now, when you're writing something, often, and writers can attest to this, um, uh, you're, 
you're writing something that often is coming through the subconscious, right? You have like a structure that's on the surface. And I wanted to tell a coming of age road story. I've always wanted to tell a coming of age road story, but the sub, the subtext of the whole story, I didn't know until I finished the film. And the story, the subtext of the story is really about a son who never really knew who his father was. And that is my story. I like, I didn't really like my dad, my dad and mom are together, but like, I didn't really know who my dad was. I didn't really know like who he was. And I'm not going to get into his story on, on this. I'll let him tell his story, but it, that was really important. That was really important. Sort of like a bill making this movie was really important for me from, uh, I was able to sort of like transcend all of my trial childhood questions about my own family. Right. And that's why, like, I keep saying, like, art is a great way of healing. You know, you can often when I don't know if I believe this, but there's this like Buddhist saying about art. And I'm a I'm a practicing Buddhist, so I might incorporate some Buddhism in this conversation Um, and you can roll your eyes at it. But I do think it helps. Um. Art can be measured not by how it transforms the viewer, but how much it transforms the artist. And I think that for me, my interpretation of that is this movie completely changed my life, completely changed my life. I had set a goal of making a film. When I got to New York in 2001, I said, I'm going to give this 10 years. And if I'm not on the right path and I don't feel like I'm becoming the person that I want to be, that was really important or like becoming the artist that I thought I could, uh, uh, be, and it's a weird thing to say, but like, I wanted to feel like I was on this right path of self-discovery. And that's a really big, important part of the story in, in telling stories. But it took me, um, we started shooting that in 2014. So it took me 13 years to make the film. So I stuck it out for another three and then made the film and getting the film made, we got really lucky. And I think everybody probably wants to hear about this and not about like my personal journey, but like we, we attached Paul Schnee as the casting director who, I don't know if you know who Paul is, John, do you, do you know who yeah, Paul is? Yeah. And Carrie Barden. And then they got us in touch with uh, Josh Dumel's uh, manager and like all this stuff is so fucking boring. But you know, but, it's like, not. This is great. So step back though. You, I mean, again, yeah. like you, you knew ten years in. Okay, you felt like you're on the right path. You have a script written, and you started sending it out. I mean, you didn't have never made a film before. Like, I mean, what did you know to do, or how did you even get to the point where, you know, you had someone believe in you enough to say that? Like, I mean, first time filmmaker is one of the hardest things to to get financed. Yeah, I mean, but like. Um, Keep in mind, this is back in 2011. So my skin color privilege and my male privilege gave me a foot up on somebody else. Was, so it, I what, what, was, it, was it the doc stuff you did and the TV stuff you did that you were able to be allowed? Yeah, sure. To- 10 years of working in that definitely helped oh. and it helped me get, get connections. But like there's a lot of privilege to getting films made, right? Uh, it's Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean like they're fucking miracles, right? Um, so... Um, it, what, what really helped me was failing. (laughs) I failed, I failed a lot. 
right? Like I found a production company that really wanted to make it. We attached Josh Dumel to it, but they couldn't raise the money. Josh 10 years ago or whatever was totally different than what he is now. Like he's a freaking movie star, right? Like he wasn't a movie star. He was a guy coming off of like a TV show called Vegas. Um, but Paul said, Hey, listen, I think he, I think he'd be great for this. And so Josh and I connected and, and then it took another, that was in 2011. And then it took another three years with Josh being attached to the project. He stuck around for three right. years. I was like, wow, that's good. good. And that nuts. Right. Cause like he could have, um, so much could have changed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, his cr- his career really wasn't launched till lost in the sun though. You have to remember. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, and he's he's great. He's a lot of fun. And he's Josh, a guy. Is, Josh is awesome. He's such a nice yeah. guy. Such a great he's guy. A, he's a great guy. And I think what really changed, and I think the thing that really like kept him kind of like stuck into the skin of Austin's son like a tick was the fact that he uh had a kid. So like there was like a and that really helped us when we shot the film. Um, because that became a really and I had young kids too. So like we could really connect over what it meant to be a new father in this world of, you know, Josh can tell his own story, but like there are some things in his life where he had an absent father too for, for his dad was like a traveling salesman for much of his life. Um, so like there were some really great things that we could dig into for him uh, to, to sort of like form that kind of sense of loss and emptiness. So we, we were able to like really connect over that. Um, but you know, it really, I got lucky. Um, and, and it, it all is, you know, it all requires timing and circumstances. Mm. And we found an investor who, uh, liked the idea of Josh being attached. Josh had some, all this stuff is really boring, but it's essential to getting a film made. Um, this is, Josh, this is what we're here to, t- to tell people. Like, <laughs> yeah, to, right, you, nobody, right. nobody really knows the nitty gritty of, right. of it, you know, of like, yeah. So like one, why people one get cast, why, how things get financed. Why mm-hmm. didn't I get, you know, but most of the right. time we don't even know all the stuff prior to, prior the to whole get there. They don't even know like process. how hard it is just to get to the point where yeah. we can put out a casting call. Like even just from writing the script, the idea of the script from mind to paper and how many times you had to rewrite and then try to get someone to back you on it. Yeah. I think, you know, like, the the thing that really helped us, and I think it re- it does, it, it's what got us over the hump with Lost in the Sun, was that Josh had what we call foreign value in Brazil. Oh, and Japan. I mean, we were at the table with the producer, and he and Josh asked me, "Goes why why me?" And he's like, "Because you're worth this in here. You're worth this here." Yeah. yeah. Right. Even even as it like, I think he, I think we got a the the we got debt financing off of a sale to Brazil of $300,000. So that debt financing, which is like, when you make a movie, you have a lot of people who invest, like friends and family who invest X amount of dollars. And then you, if you're lucky to have like a star who has foreign value, you can uh, acquire debt financing off of their value and the sale of the, of the film to Brazil or Japan, okay? So we debt finance three dollars to $500,000 to Brazil and Japan. And uh, that helped us get the movie over the hump. Um, and then the, the the hardest thing wasn't Josh wasn't the hardest thing. The biggest mistake I made with Josh was telling him we should give you a gold tooth because he hung on to wanting to have a gold tooth 
like the whole time. And like, we put a gold tooth on them. And uh, like uh, when we were doing like uh, camera tests, we have to keep dulling it down. Cause it was like the brightest thing in the scene. Yeah. It's like, but if you look really closely at the film, he's got a really dull gold, like gold tooth in the front. Um, yeah. You like the front? I mean, sometimes that's the anchor, right? For the character, for somebody, it's a hat, it's a shoe. So that must've been like his, you know, like it was his, yeah. it was his it destroyed his mouth. Um, so, cause he paid for the, he played for the implant. He paid for all that stuff. Um, but it, it destroyed his mouth. Now I have to go back and look. Yeah. You should look at it. Cause I but didn't it's see like, it. <laughs> Um, but the heart to me, the heart and soul of the film is the role of Lewis, um, Josh Wiggins. Mm -hmm. Um, so was Josh actually, um, cast in a whole casting normal, what we consider normal casting? Yeah. So, so he, Trey, you know, hooks up with, with, with me and Carmen and we have Josh and that's the only person that we had. And so we had to find everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, oh yeah, we were, the, the the girl ended up coming in later. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah. yeah. We, so this is when we start going into a traditional audition casting process. Yep, okay. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And like um, the the thing about Wiggins is that we you said from the very beginning, John, you're like, this is your kid. <laughs> Yeah, this is your kid. I mean, if you want to cast everybody else, you can, but this is your kid. Did you feel like, like that initially? Did you agree with him initially? Um, well, I, uh, so Kat was editing um, Hellion mm -hmm. in Austin at that time in a space above John's casting um, office. And uh, you got us into her edit suite, right? Mm -hmm. Before Hellion. I think she knew she was getting into Sundance, but she was finishing it up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, I saw some of it and, um, this was in November of 2013. Um, I saw some of it and I was like, Oh yeah. Wow. This kid's good. Cause Kat was like really proud. She found him. Yeah. Right. Like she found him off of YouTube. YouTube. Yep. Yep. It yeah. Was a it was someone and they were took really it. It was their friend and, the, and they, they found it through the YouTube video. I mean, and, and the stuff that I saw, I was like blown away, but I had to, you know, it's, it's like, I had to like go through the process of casting everybody else too. Like we had to go through and we had, like, I'm going the, through the same thing right now. I'm like, this is the kid and you have to go and make sure that holds. You have to go throw everything against it to make sure it holds. I mean, I, I get it now, you know, like I get now why you have to go through the process. Cause it's like, you have to, you have to prove that this is the, the, the kid, this is the person. You have to prove it to yourself. No, to your, not yeah, to yourself. It, and you have to prove you have to like due diligence for your investors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, we did that, and um, there were, it came down to two kids. I think I forget who the other the other kid was. He had blonde hair. Josh actually, Josh Wig, sorry, Josh Dumel, JD, um, wanted this other kid, and he said, "Oh, this kid is going to push me." And I said, no, can we watch down the tape, please? So we brought up the tape and I said, Josh, watch Wiggins performance. And, and I said, he owns you in this scene. And he watched it and he was like, yeah, yeah, he is, <laughs> he's, yeah, you're right. And I made the decision 
And um, that's what a director should do, right? Um, I, I've got to own the shit sandwich if I'm going to make it. I'm going to own the submarine sandwich or the meatball sandwich if it's going to taste good. So, um, I, you know, that's that's part of the job of. Uh, I mean, the other thing is J, JD was in the room with us working with the kids, which was amazing. So we he had him. We had him in Austin, and so we had our top you know, our top kids and, and he worked with them, you know? Okay, so he read with all of them. He read with all of them, yeah. And then you gave him, you know, an opportunity to express his opinion, which that doesn't always get a chance to happen. And so you guys have... We said you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion's wrong. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so you guys, okay, you already had Josh. You're casting... Um, I was going to say Little Josh, whatever. Yeah, Little Josh. <laughs> little Josh. That's, how, that's what we called him on set. Josh Jr. <laughs> little Josh. Um, and so those were those the only two? Well, no, because you had the the other roles. Were they also in a— We were doing everything simultaneously. Okay. Yeah, we okay. were casting everything. I mean, everything besides Josh was cast. Yeah, and then Emma Furman—Emma, is it Emma Furman? Yeah. Emma, who was from Dallas, came in to play the role of the other little girl. Yep. Um and she she looks so familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was she I I always thought like Emma uh, I I think Emma's still growing as a, as an actor, but I she she had a small role in Avengers Endgame, I think. She played Ant-Man's daughter for a hot second in that in that movie. Um but like I've always thought Emma was um of all the actors that I worked, I mean Wiggins is spectacular, but I thought Emma always was going to grow into something. She had a maturity uh, and an understanding of that pain and of that, of that character so well. And she did it so subtly and she did it with, you know, masterfully. Yeah. It was, it was really impressive. Yeah. And, and Wiggins, um, Wiggins, Josh Wiggins is such a effortless, uh, actor. Like, like he just, it's, it all comes so easily to him, you know, his performance and, is so just settled and subtle and I was just watching it in, in awe of it just because it was just like he just trusted himself allowed the process to happen allowed the the scene to the emotion to come through him and not push it and not you know did you, he wasn't working at all it was it was it was really nice to to yeah. revisit that that performance yeah and and I think that it I, I mean you're giving like like I said, it like getting an independent film made is a miracle. I mean, I'm trying to get one made right now, and um, I'm fully financed, and I can't get it made. Right? Um, Talk about that real quick. That's just that's like crazy, right? It's like you have you you're not a first time director. You have proven yourself with. I mean, the the Fifth Man is amazing. Like you've you've anything you which is you know like you said you've forged your own career and you've you've shown that you can masterfully do so many different things. You have a great script, you have financing and you're still can't get it, you know, still struggling. Yeah. It, and it, that's, that's really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Um, yeah, it's really frustrating. Uh, but I also have to, you know, this is something that's really interesting that happened right before lost in the sun hap like literally happened was I had completely given up on the film, 100%. I was like, I'm not going to make this movie. This was in like, this was like that summer of 2013. And it's interesting is when, when you often let go of something, that's when you're actually allowing it to like take on its own 
Dude, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, you're you're holding on so tight it can't it can't move, and so as soon as you let go, it happens. So it, it was it was that I made like a couple of like phone calls to a producer. I said I really wanted to make it, and you know it was Amy Shea who uh, who's part of Foreign Shea Productions. Um, shout out to them. They're they made this movie happen. And then they put us in touch with Clay Picorin who got the financing for the film. And it just happened. Boom, boom, just like that. So the letting go, the process of acceptance that something might happen is uh, you're, you're, you're letting it go and you're giving yourself the freedom to fail, right. For it to not happen. And um, I've had to do this on this other film that I'm trying to get made in Canada. Um, It's called the mountain and, um, you know, I've got uh, a different casting director. Sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> it's Canada. Not, it's, it's, uh, it's totally okay. <laughs> Rory, Rory Bergman is casting it, and we've been casting it since the spring, and it's it's been really hard. Uh, the, the strike has just really kind of thrown everything, uh, a lot of uncertainty into in, actresses who, who are attached to projects and how they want to get attached to it. And, yeah, because sh- schedules get thrown all off and yeah, you don't. Yeah, yeah. So and also you have to find like this is the thing that like I think is really important. And it's also like the lesson of Lost in the Sun is Josh wasn't married and Josh didn't have a kid when I cast him for Lost in the Sun. By the time we made the movie, he was married and he had a kid. And that informed his performance in such a freaking amazing way that it it wouldn't have been the same film right. if I had made it. Boom. We cast him. We go out and make the movie. Boom, boom, boom. Wiggins was not an actor in 2011. Cat found him. Mm-hmm. Right. And those are like the circumstances that required for the film to get made. Mm-hmm. Like it wouldn't have been like, I think the thing when I made the intention of the film was I was going to serve the actors. I was not going to serve myself on this film. I was going to serve them. That's the whole thing. I wasn't going to serve my vision. I was going to serve the actors and was allowed my DP, Rob Baracci. Rob is amazing. Did a great job. But I was going to serve the story and the intimacy of the story. And um, that was the goal. And I consider the film a success. One, because it changed me. And two, because I am most proud of those performances. Those guys are, they hold a special place in my heart. um, And I'm extremely proud of what they did on the film and where they took it. Josh Wiggins told my story. What a gift. He told my story. He told my story. Like that is such a gift that he gave me. And I, the scene that I did, I have watched (laughs) is the last scene. Because the last scene when he sees the picture of Josh on the on the wall holding him, I just yeah it, it it that moment for me I had I had it took me forever to shoot that because I, when I was shooting it I was breaking down crying constantly I had to go take breaks in between set Wiggins came outside to check on me to see if I was okay like a fifteen year old kid came out to see if I was okay. And the thing that I didn't understand what it was about in the moment of making the art was my realization of 
I was, my story was being seen by me as I'm making it. That's a freaking amazing gift to be seen and to see. It never happens. So um, I continue to be really grateful for all the gifts that you know, Dumel gave me, Wiggins gave me, Clay Picorn, the investor, gave me, Amy, Shay, Clay Foran, the two Clays. Um, so I'm, I have a lot of gratitude for them. Um, and it wouldn't have been the film unless uh, all those circumstances came together. Again, a miracle, a miracle. So uh, I think some there's some Buddhisms uh, in there. <laughs> trust and uh, so let, let's talk about your casting ideology and your casting process oh god um okay so we we just finished you and i just finished casting a commercial mm -hmm. right we did that at the end of last year mm -hmm. right um for the fort worth tourism commercial shout out to fort worth Shout out to Fort Worth shout out to everybody at visit fort worth who supported us on that all the people of Fort Worth. I actually wrote a script about Fort Worth after shooting that commercial. I'm going to pitch it right now. It's about, uh, <laughs> it's called Rubicon, Texas. And it's about a gang of thieves who plot to rob a bank during Friday night lights. And it's the best thing I've ever written. It's so good. Sounds fun. Yeah. It sounds like a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of fun. And with the tax credits in Texas, I don't live in Texas anymore. I live in Massachusetts. Um, with the tax credits in Texas, uh, hopefully we could get it made uh, next year. All right. um, so we'll see what happens. But the casting process for, because that one's at top of mind for me, is we had to cast uh, one, two, it cast like five or six people, right? More than and, that. I mean, for, yeah, a little bit more. Way more than that. that was, was it more? Yeah, it was a big, it was a big cast, man, from this, the guys in the... Um, in the in the stores mm -hmm. to you know uh, oh yeah like yeah right there yeah. was a lot of people yeah, yeah. but i guess Wiggins, the, one, the girl the mom the the, the people yeah the girl the mom yeah, yeah there's a ton of, okay there's a ton of people but i want to go back to the kid right there's a kid in that commercial too yeah and right yeah and and um I, so i wrote that commercial as well um that was like one of those weird commercials where like uh, they didn't have a script, but they wanted to tell a story of Fort Worth. So they like brought me down to Fort Worth and we kind of like wrote the commercial um, and the great people at Smarty Pants Productions, who's a production company in New York, uh, found like this old archival footage of uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, voiceovering uh, a documentary about the city of Fort Worth. So we pulled all of that voiceover and laid it into the commercial Um so we cast Jimmy Stewart, John. Yes. Um, <laughs> back from the dead. Yes. Um, but the the casting process for for that was, you know, like the the mandate is uh, these days is uh, diversity, whatever that means, right? Like um, the it, to me, diversity can mean so many things, and but you have to like sort of like sift through what it means to the client, what diversity means. To me, this that story was about a kid seeing a city for the first time, right? Like when you were a child, like I remember when I was a kid, um, when I lived in Oakland, I made my parents made me like drive around all over. Then they drove me out through the country, but when like I went into um, 
downtown Dallas, I made my parents drive me around downtown Dallas because they were building all these like huge buildings in the eighties and stuff. So I wanted to incorporate my own personal experience of like driving downtown. So we incorporated that into the story. Now the key to the casting process was to me, everything hinged on that kid and his sense of awe of seeing something for the first time. And this is a theme in a lot of my films is like, I, and I consider the Fort Worth commercial more of a film than even a commercial really is the themes are seeing and being seen are really important to my storytelling because I think going back to when I was growing up in the 1980s in Dallas uh, during in Oakland during the AIDS epidemic, I didn't want to be seen. Like I didn't, I didn't want people to know that I lived in a gay neighborhood during the AIDS epidemic. I didn't want to be seen. So part of my storytelling is there's so many people in stories that want to hide from their truth. And so many people want to hide from so many things about themselves that I want to tell stories of people showing the bravery of seeing and being seen. So part of that story for the Fort Worth thing was how can I find a kid that could really articulate that sense of seeing and being seen. And that kid was spectacular. I forget what his name was, but, um, he just nailed the sense of um, awe that you need to you need to get from that particular um, spot. Um, but I don't know how that informs my casting philosophy, so I haven't really answered the fucking question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so when, when we're in the room and, and you know you're watching tape and you're in the room, like, what are you looking for? Right? Do you have an idea of each character already? Like, like, in yeah, your you head? wrote you wrote Lost in the Sun, and 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 are are you forming? sort of a sense of cause, uh, personal connection to that? And are you looking for that? Are you open to just seeing what people bring? Or what is that for you, like that emotional journey? Yeah, so, um, so okay, it's, it's totally different when you're casting a star, right? When you're casting a star, you're just hoping to get lucky, right? You're hoping they like connect to the, to the material in a way uh, that they want to have a conversation with you about it. And then when you have that conversation with them, you hope that there's like a, there, there's a exchange of ideas that feel like there's curiosity and growth it, within the possibility that when you're on set, like, I think direction is when I think about casting, I think about how am I going to interact with this person on set? Because I really enjoy talking a lot about what the role means emotionally prior to shooting. And then when I get on set, my notes are very, unless things are totally going off the rails and I need the individual to sort of like take a break and we need to rethink this, which very rarely happens because everybody becomes very prepared and usually we have really good conversations. The notes that I give tend to be very small, like, if you're on a boat, you just want to shift it a little bit to the left or a little bit starboard or, you know, port or whatever. You're not trying to like really make right hand turns or anything like that. So you want to have someone, an actor, an actress who has intellectual curiosity about conversation so that they can take an idea and run with it. I don't want to control actors. That's the last thing I want to do. I want to give actors the space to explore something that they need to explore. Because if I'm trying to control them, 
Like, what's the point? It, it's not a puppet show. Right. It's not a puppet show. I, it, it's my same philosophy of like, you know, it's, I know there's a lot of fear about AI and we could talk about AI because I'm part of like an AI company that is trying to like really enable people without means to articulate their vision. Right. That's what I think is the, the gift of AI. And we could talk about that some more. But the thing about a collaboration on a film is it's a collaboration 100%. This vision, sure, I wrote the script, but the execution of the vision depends on the actor bringing themselves to the role, the DP picking a time during the day to shoot it, the fact that it may not be raining, the fact that somebody may have not gotten sick. There's so many variables that I can't control. So I don't try to control anything. I just set up the terrarium for the people to explore their little, like, you know, when you were a kid, you had a terrarium. I had like, I had like these like little crabs. So like I would put the crabs, like I had a little sandbar with like some water and I put some plants up and I put the crabs in and they drink and I feed them. That's the same thing. You're, you're setting up a terrarium for them to explore the world of this particular script. Um, so the important thing about casting is, do you have an individual who's intellectually curious about the emotional moments in the story? And if, if they're on the wrong path, can you, during the casting process, give them a note to see, can they get on the right path? Not because I've given them the note, but because I've given them direction on where to go so that they could explore that path on their own. And so, um, so in the room, is that easy for you to see? Like, is that what you're, is that what you're, you're. Every, every casting decision I've made, I've made on gut. Right. All, all of them. It's, even there's no. Yeah. I was going to say, even if you're, cause earlier you mentioned like working with a star. So like for this well, that's, one. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, yeah. Like, what's, what's crazy is that you're, you're bound to who will talk to you. Okay, because I was going to say- An independent like, film, you know? I, I always like big offices, right? Right. That, that cat, and they're like, what great casting. I'm like, well, they could choose anybody. Okay. Like, you know, like, like of course they can get Brad Pitt because it's Martin Scorsese. Right. You know what I mean? So my question, I guess, would be, because now you have funding involved. So when funding's involved, I know that can sometimes interfere with maybe what your idea of who you may want to cast can, mm. right? So now you have this money and- do are you the one? I, I think you may have said that they suggested Josh, but did you have an idea, or do you, as the director, writer, director, have an idea of like I would love this star, but now here comes this funding that says no, we need to go for so and so, and you're like, oh, I wasn't thinking that person, but you have to like figure out like okay, I got to go with the flow because I can't get my film um, funded if I don't, or like are you allowed to like put input like you know do you guys have an opportunity to go back and forth? It really, listen, it, I, I really believe um, that making a film, the first step in making the film after you've written the script is deciding who you want to make it with, okay? If you have producers, and I'm not talking about actors, if you have producers who are really beholden to um, foreign sales, um, and they live in a place of fear um, where if we don't get X, Y, Z actor, the film is going to be uh, unsuccessful, run away from those people. And the reason I say that is because nothing having experience and have had partners 
that have have said these these are the boundaries in which you have to create your art. You have to have X Y Z actor. Now listen, when if I ever am blessed with the opportunity to make a really big film, and Warner Brothers says you have to cast these five people as your lead because they have particular foreign value. And one of the top of that list is Leonardo DiCaprio. You say, thank you very much. (laughs) So that's a different scenario. But when I'm talking about independent films, you can get caught in this trap of, of having producers say, listen, we need to get a big star for this in order to justify making this film. It's a non-starter. It's a non-starter because you're never going to get that actor. Be- you, you really aren't. Unless you have connections and it, like an intimate relationship with them and you're getting a favor. I mean, John, do you agree? It seems like you're cringing at this. No, this not at all. I mean, you've just that's 99% of what happens, right? Is we're always waiting to get the name that brings the value so that the triggers the money so we can go make it. You know what I mean? Like it's it just that's just uh, what we're finding through this pod- podcast is that that if you're not beholden to this, if you're able to make your film for friends and family money or, or low money, like these great films come out of that and it's not beholden to names and stars. And so what I'm learning is like, and, and they're the most fun films to make, right? We get to we get to all go off with nobody telling us what to do and make these films. But, you know, if you're going to spend, a f- you know, more than a million dollars, I mean, I don't like... Your creative freedom. Kind yeah, of your creative freedom. You, you You sacrifice a lot, you know? I mean, that's that. What, what I loved about Lost in the Sun was that uh, Josh covered that spread, right? And and he is awesome. And then we had the freedom. We I really didn't feel from any of the producers a ton of pressure. You know, to, we got to choose the best people. You know, uh, and we got to really. Yeah, I mean, Lynn, Lynn Collins, um, who played a role in the film, that came about. I think there was a little bit of pressure to cast her. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some pressure to cast her because of her foreign value. Um, But, you know, I mean, I'm in a, I, I'm in a certain situation now where um, I'm casting for this, this film that I'm shooting in Toronto called the the mountain. And, you know, this is the funny, the, the funny thing about it is the best actors are the best actors for a reason because they're fucking good and they happen to be really fucking expensive and they get a lot of scripts and they get a lot of attention um, because they're really good at their jobs. All the people that I want to play the lead in my film are big actors. Of course I want them, but the hope is that you have to take those swings. You have to take those swings and if you don't take those swings, you're going to regret it. And if, and it, you also have to demonstrate to your investors that we're trying to take these swings. That's plan A, right? We're going to make these swings to these really wonderful actors and actresses. The other strategy that you can employ, and I really love this strategy when you're making a, a really small film, let's say sub $2 million, because a million-dollar film is, I mean, it's hard to raise that money, but like, let's just say it's like a sub $2 million film. Um, which is what I'm trying to make now, um, is the, 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 if you can cast someone who is, you're making the decision on the casting for creative reasons, not marketing reasons, not budgetary reasons, and you really believe in the lead, and it's an unknown, relatively unknown person, 
you can build this casting strategy and that person, let's say that person has to work for five weeks, but you have smaller roles that can play a week here or a week there. That's where you can really have a nice casting strategy that satisfies not only your creative process, but satisfies the needs of the investors, which is like, well, can we get some bigger names that could play for a week here or a week right. there? Come in for a couple of days. Play, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's for a, couple a, days, a big strategy. Which is, which is a great strategy because you're, you're, you're making a creative decision on your lead and you might get lucky where like for Lost in the Sun, Josh's book was a great creative decision and also really helped us get the film made. Very lucky. The circumstances were right. But that's not always going to be the situation. So you have to be able to adapt and say, okay, well, let's find a complete unknown for the lead. This person's going to pop and have a huge career. And then let's surround this person with known quantities where people can go, oh, that's a famous person. That's a famous person. We're going to put them on the poster, right? Because that's how the game works, right? Like you can play the game and pretend that like, I'm going to make a film with unknowns. But the game is based off of this. All of us can hold a person's face in their brain and say, we all know who Harrison Ford looks like, right? Everybody knows who Harrison Ford looks like. That's what fame is. We know what they look like in our head. <laughs> that's, isn't that crazy? <laughs> and then people go like, people go, oh yeah, that's a famous person because everybody knows who that person is. That person makes everybody feel comfortable about going making the movie. It's fucking absurd, right? It's it's it I mean, is. There, it's there's a trust too with Harrison because he's delivered and he's told great stories and he's been a part of great stories and so you build a relationship with that with that image in your head. And but my point, but my point is, is more of the abstract, right? What is fame, right? So like Harrison Ford is an amazing. I don't know if you guys saw the new Indiana Jones film. I loved it. I think it was awesome. But I'm a I'm a big Indiana Jones film uh, fan and. Uh, Phoebe is her name Phoebe I forget what her last name is the lady who was in Fleabag who wrote Fleabag she was amazing oh I, I was, okay um, but the uh, the the point is is like the you can play these games but it is a game that we're playing right for sure I mean <laughs> for sure I mean it's all make believe baby <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's probably true in every industry too, though. Yeah. On on some level. Oh, the game? Yeah, yeah. all the games. It's yeah. one big game. The United States is a game. <laughs> uh, so what is it? What is it with that, your advice as far as with actors? Because it is so hard to get through. Like, what have you? What do you see when you're like when someone comes in and they and they they do their audition and you're like, that's it. Like, or is it just truth? Is it just that it matches the idea in your head? Or like, how how do you go? How do you go about deciding whether, yeah, this someone is good or someone is bad, or this is the one I like this one? Um, well, it, de it really depends on where you're fitting them on the board of on your board. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what do I need from this particular performance? Do I need this performance to resonate? as a uh, vulnerability that I'm going to cast this person who can. So how do you look at that painting? Like how do you, when you, when you, when, yeah. you, when you're creating that painting, how do you look at it? Um, so for lost in the sun. Conflict. Who is going to create the most conflict on screen? And um, that was Josh Wiggins. 
he was going to drive Josh Duhamel nuts on and off set. So it worked. Um, the other beautiful thing about like, like if you're making like a, a wonderful, I love enchiladas. Right. And the thing about making enchiladas is like what, like I like enchilada suiza, which have like the sour cream and the chicken and like all that stuff. So you've got to have different ingredients in your enchiladas. I knew that like Josh was the chicken, but I needed Dumel. Sorry. I needed Wiggins to be something else, which was like a little bit like not spicy, but um, empty. There's an emptiness to Wiggins performance in that his emptiness and his sadness allowed the audience member to project their own emotions onto him. I think some of the best actors are don't steer you in a direction of how to feel, but allow the viewer to feel a certain way because there's a lack of something there. And Wiggins was so effortless in something like that. And then there were moments when he could go from like first gear to fourth gear and be a complete brat. And uh, not many actors can do that, uh, but Wiggins can. I just saw him. I just saw him in Greyhound. Did you guys see Greyhound? That Tom Hanks film. He played like this really small role in it, but I was like, I like it. It's right there. I love it. I mean, I also love all the the other surrounding actors in that film. You know, the oh my god, Michael Luis. Like, I mean, Luis took it so serious. Was so dedicated. Like. I mean, I thought everybody just delivered, you know? So I was watching Hell or High Water recently. And um, so they they made that film came out in 2016, I think. And I think I, that I don't know dates or remember timelines at all. So yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Right. Yeah. So like they so they shot that film, I think, in like 20, like the, maybe the same year that we shot Lost in the Sun. And um, there is an actress. I forget what her name is. She played the uh, waitress. Oh yeah, yeah. K. K. Epperson. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 who's, yeah. Who's no longer who's passed? Who, yeah, K. I, when I saw K, I was like, oh, K. Like yeah. I, I haven't seen her in uh, anything since. She's, she's amazing. She's, she's amazing. So she was. She was like everybody had that. such great texture. I mean, it just fit that film so well. Well, that was you, dude. I mean, like, <laughs> no, that's, that's just me just letting opening the door and letting people come in. So. Do you remember? So, but like Kay Epperson played a waitress in Hell or High Water. Mm -hmm. And she, like, if you guys get a chance, I would highly recommend seeing that scene where um, Jeff Bridges is sitting in a diner and she's like giving Jeff Bridges and his his partner, like, what is on the menu. And she's like, we got steak and we got baked potatoes and that's about it. And she, like, totally destroys the scene and, like, she doesn't get eclipsed by Jeff Bridges in any way. She owns the scene and that's hard to do. Right. And she was just amazing in it. And she was amazing in our, in our little scene there too. But do you remember, John, we had a really hard time casting Lewis's grandmother. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. 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 And you were, and I was like, it was one of the last scenes that we shot um, on the film and you said to me, you said to me again, this, I forget who the actor who played the role, because I, I don't remember that stuff, but you, the, the actor who ended up playing the role, um, you said, this is, you should give her a second chance because I really think that she's the one. And I, I just trusted you. I just trusted you. And uh, I didn't look, I didn't look at tape. Um, even though you did send me some tape, 
and you said, just cast her. She's the one. And I trusted you. And she crushes that scene. Oh, I thought you were going to say. And then on set, right, I was like, like no. <laughs> right. oh, no, she was amazing. She yeah, was she's amazing. Great. No, like yeah, her. she's great. Yeah. So I guess like it goes back to You know to, who like, else is that I forgot about that was amazing was when he's about to steal the truck. The guy that comes yeah. out of the... Yeah. Dude, that, yeah. that voice yeah. is amazing. I get lost. Yeah, yeah, you lost. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I forget some of those characters. And the church scene. But, oh, the, yeah. The, 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 I, the, we, we had a hard time getting the, the preacher and, and finding someone that just had that fabric where you just didn't... Like there was a bunch of stuff that we talked about that was subtext that that you know was backstory, and and uh and he just so brought that like yeah this something's not something's a little off about this guy right I mean I yeah. I love that scene because yeah. you can see you know Wiggins was like nope we're gonna go to church yeah. and you know you make him like have to sit through like oh my gosh I'm about to burn <laughs> you know because now he has to deal with his demons right sitting there in that whole in that pew. And it just made me think about my childhood, like going to church. Anytime they see a new face, they make you stand up, introduce yourself, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. – was his name John in the film? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John. And then John, the, whole, John the whole time I'm like, oh, great. Now everyone's going to remember John and this kid <laughs> in the church. But, yeah, it's like uh, that whole scene, like even leading up towards the end, right? It, it, for for the character, it's like you can see things going in his mind and then the preacher coming at the end. And then, like you said, it shows where Wiggins has that moment of being a brat when he tried to get, you know, the hitchhiker. And he's like, no, no, like the pastor's right. You're a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, in sheep's yeah. clothing. I was just like, ah, uh, I had a feeling before I got to the end that that was his dad. You know what I mean? Because we don't really reveal it. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people, a lot of people didn't like the film because they knew that he was his dad very early on. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, but still. But it, it, to me, that's not the point. Like you're not holding a secret for a big plot twist at the end. The conflict of the story is is knowing that he's the dad. Yeah. Yeah. With this, with his kid. Yeah. It's like, you're putting your son in this predicament. The, and the police officer was another big one. Like, I don't, it's so funny because you were so, uh, I don't know, like, I'm not, difficult is not the word, but you just were painstaking <laughs> over every character and who to cast. Like, you were so thorough and so invested in each one and had a great idea of like who you, how you wanted it and who you wanted it. And it was, it was, you know, it was to the point where it's like, dude, this is the guy. Like I had to tell you because you were just like, and I don't know if it was because it's the first film and, and it was, you were, you were, you know, worried about making that final choice. Like I find a lot of directors won't make a choice until they're forced to, you know, they're like, they're like, want to see more. Let me see more, you know, which is horrible for me. But, uh, but you guys are like, let me, let me until, until I have to make this decision. Yeah, I think um, you're confusing me with somebody else. I'm never like that. You were so. totally like that. <laughs> you're like, like I was like, this guy's amazing. You're like, I don't know. Maybe there is uh, somebody else that we could. Well, you know, you're not going to imagine the pressure of your very first film, right? Like, you yeah. know, trying to make it's, sure you. It's really hard to sort of, you know, like. This conversation is such a blessing because it's like. I haven't had to think about the film and the journey that that I went on in making Lost in the Sun. 
So it's like, I'm really grateful for it because it, it's, it's a reminder of how far we've all come. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, John, like I remember you right before, I think that September you had cast a David Gordon Green film. Um, was it, was it Joe? Yeah, it was, Joe? Joe. it was probably Joe. Yeah. And um, you had found all these characters in Joe that in that film premiered at Toronto in that September. And Paul had seen the film at Toronto that September and said, you got, you've got to connect with John Williams because he found all these real people. And then I heard John saying to me when we met, he's like, oh, yeah, I found these people by walking around downtown Austin, just like hitting people up, talking to them, connecting with them. Um, And that's that's the level of commitment that is unique. And that's why, John, you're a special human being, man. Like you you see instead of you see the best in everybody right and what i don't know if it's the best but i i see i mean i think i think i hone into what i'm looking for and then i also see that they have that this authentic quality that we're looking for because i have cast some not so great humans yeah (laughs) they're not the best people but i can see that like i can see that 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 paint stroke and i'm like oh this is is 100 percent true you know like, yeah, but then, and, then, then I dump crazy off at your desk and you have to make it work. <laughs> right. And I think that's part of like the relief of casting people. Like every time you're like, Oh, thank God he picked somebody. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because it's, because it's not your problem anymore. So yeah. I think that, right. Well, yeah. So, and, and it's also like you, you find all these people that you love. Right. And, and you guys, for whatever reason, want to keep looking. And I'm like, man, there, I don't know where I'm going to find more of this quality of, of great, you know, of, of people that are right for it or that I feel are right for it. You know, there is, I think everything that we're talking about is trust. Right. Totally. And I think the hardest, the hardest thing that the hardest thing to do is a first time filmmaker. Like I think what's the hardest thing to do in a first time filmmaker is that your fuel is fear as a first time filmmaker. So it's really hard and that's no place to make art. Like it is no place to make art is from a place of fear. And I made that film on my fuel was fear. And I got lucky enough that a lot of people weren't as fearful as I was as we were making the film. Okay. In the eight years, how many years, you know, we made it 2014. So nine years in making that film, my, my process is completely changed. Um, like, it, I have learned to trust myself. I've learned to trust my collaborators much more. My fuel isn't fear. My fuel is um, trust. It's, it's a trust in the actors. It's trust in all my collaborators. Because one, that's a hell of a lot more fun to work on a set when the person that you're working with is like trusting you and you could feel free to create whatever you want. Well, to create and, to and do- fail, right? To try something and fail and it's okay, right? It's like, that's how you find the gold. Yeah, we tried it, didn't work. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go back to plan A or whatever. And I think that's the hardest part about like directors is they don't want to fail, especially like a first time feature because they feel like it's the last chance they're going to get. 
well, it may be the last chance you get, but it's the first chance you're getting to make a film. So go and do it, right? And fail. Listen, like everybody fails. Everybody fails. I'm failing miserably on this podcast today. So it's like it. it, So it's the whole point is I have learned more from failures than I have from my successes. A classic line that you learn from that from life. But the reason that you learn from your failures is because you're like, oh, not because of shame or any of these other crazy feelings that you might get from it. I think you learn from your failures is because you have a curiosity on why uh, it didn't work. And like, oh, I want to try it a different way this next time. Um, I felt like you allowed for that a lot in the casting room, especially. Like, I, I feel like a lot of moments that we discovered in the room ended up in the film, like whether in the subtle stuff, just a look of the eye or just a sort of something that you you directed in the room to get people to bring it down or, or, or to like, you know, zero in on what you were looking for. And I feel like that those moments I saw when I watched it again, I was like, oh, I, I had like a, a a memory of like, oh, I remember being in that the room that we were in at that time and, and you directing that moment. And then it ended up on screen and working and being effective. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I, I think that, um, yeah, I'm just grateful for, for the opportunity to have made the film. You know, you mentioned the scene at the church Mm -hmm. and, um, I was, that's the midpoint of the film. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, like when I was writing that, I had very little idea of what like structure, like when you hit, you need to hit your structure on a film. I was like, totally clueless in that stuff. I really relied on my gut and having watched like a billion hours of eighties movies and nineties movies as a child. And, um, that midpoint I always thought was the weakest point of the film, but I look back on it now and I actually think it's a really strong point because it's the conflict between the sense of freedom that John wants in his life of being sort of like a traveler free and this sense of conformity right? Which is the church. So like, it was like a really interesting pivot at the middle of the film. And I could look back on like, oh, that was actually a really interesting point. And that we needed an actor in that moment who played the role of the, of the pastor to have a little bit of clinginess, greediness, wanting that, um, that, that we needed to have uh, a resistance to and conflict to. So yeah, and, and the, I think that that scene's effective too because for me it's like it's the point where he and you know John can't internally take it anymore and he, and he just has to get out of there right. and he has to he you know he's just like he can't lay in that quiet in that discomfort with that struggle and he and he blows up and he's like he's like we got to go we got let's go yeah I think it's hard to like I think it's a it's hard to sit with sometimes it's hard to sit with yourself. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Then he's conflicted exactly between he, yeah, he what's right and wrong. He's like, yeah. I gotta run. I gotta yeah. run. And that's the key to his character. He's always gotta run. Mm-hmm. You know? So like I think that story, so I, I that 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 moment of running away it was my version of when I was drinking. Like if anything, well, yeah, I mean, not only that, you run. physically were running, you're running to Mexico, you're running to Costa Rica, you're running, mm-hmm. you know, you're running. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So what, what happened? Like, so I finished making that movie in 20, at the end of 20, sorry, in February of 2014 in Austin. And then 
Uh, we edited it until June or July. And then I started working on that documentary, 14 Minutes from Earth, that summer that ended up going to Tribeca. And that summer I was uh, shooting. So the documentary, like the story is about a guy who like builds a spacesuit for himself and floats himself up to like 75,000 feet and then free fall. That's great. Yeah, I watched it. So when I was making it, I got run over by a truck <laughs> and fractured. <laughs> okay. Maybe you should stop traveling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you get attacked by you wild dogs. And, oh, yeah, my God. Well, it's crazy. I mean, life, life throws you curve. Right. But, like, I was operating a camera, and I basically got crushed and run over by a truck while I was operating a camera. And I fractured, like... <sighs> A bunch of ribs. I fractured my hip, and I was probably like six inches away from uh, being paralyzed. And it it was such a like it and it happened August twentieth, two thousand fourteen. So I'm coming up on the ninth anniversary of it. And the the thing the thing about it that it's it changed when you have like a near death experience. It changes the way in which you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And what it changed for me was a lot of artists, let's say directors, writers, directors in particular, want to make art in service of themselves. They're making art for themselves. What that near-death experience changed for me was that I wanted to start making art for other people, not just for me. And I have realized that Lost in the Sun was really a gift for me. It was a gift for me because like it, it, it was a miracle that it got made. But in this pre, in the, you know, that came out to end of 215, 216. So in, in the next seven years, I've been unable to make a movie. I haven't really tried. To, to make another feature film because I hadn't had anything that I wanted to write about. But this next film that I'm making and had in finance for the mountain is about my journey from being broken, cracked open and nearly killed to kind of like freedom. Right. And I think that what's really important for people who make films is that Along the way, you're going to be making a lot of art for yourself. But eventually, that art can't always be in service of yourself. It has to be in service of something else. And my hope is, is the art that I'm making now, The Fifth Man is an example. I made that, I made that film during the pandemic, that documentary during the pandemic. And it helped people kind of like come back home. It was like sort of a returning for, for those uh those people that I made the film with, it was a gift to them. What ends up happening is like, I feel like it's when you create art for other people to help other people, you can end up making great art as opposed to just this really narrow piece of artwork that is only just for you. Um, well, but that's hard to do. That's a, that's a tough pitch. <laughs> I mean, I think even though you said Lost in the Sun, you realized it was for you. I'm sure it still reached other people because with, we can always find, I think, something relatively. Well, I think everybody know, brings themselves to it, yeah. right? And, and, and it's, it's something that they use to reflect on their journey yeah. and identify or relate to. So, uh, 
I can say it's it's twofold. It works for All works right. for both. Like so, I just but I think that. I think for 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 as a storyteller, it has to be personal, right? Yeah, it has to it has to be a journey for you. I mean. I think it was such a journey for all of us, uh, and it was such a great experience, you know. And we became good friends, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I look back on it as a wonderful, wonderful. And that's my when, when for me, it's that journey of making stuff with other people. That's that's my the most is being with with really cool people and making cool stuff. You know, it's not so much when it comes out and what it does. It's just it's like, am I gonna have? Uh, am I going to grow? Am I going to learn? Am I going to be around people? Are we going to create? Are we going to, you know, that the, the process is, is the most fun for me. And I think just the people involved is a testament to show that it, it still reached other people. So even though for you on the end, you're feeling like, oh, this was for me, but people wanted to be involved. So your story still reached others like John and all the other producers and everybody who was willing to back you to make this film. So I feel like no matter film, TV, whatever, you'll have an audience that is going to reach one way or another, regardless if you are actually privy to it. Like, if you know, people are not going to always come up to you and go, this, 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 did this for me. This. But just know, like, it did. It did something. I think also to all the actors that came in identified with their characters with through their story, right? So they somehow are bringing their story and their journey to your what you wrote, you know, and bringing it to life. I appreciated watching it. So I think it was a great story, not knowing that it had anything to do with your personal Connection and to you were attacked yeah. by dogs and crushed by <laughs> and cars crushed and, by a truck and fell out of a yeah, plane yeah. to make the movie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and you know, I had a friend tell me like we go through these experiences as artists for a reason because it's our job to be able to tell our truth. It relates to people. Like our life experiences can come into these jobs, you know, and so it. It, even though we go through the traumatic parts in our life, ultimately it helps us tell these stories one way or another, or at least we hope. I it mean, does. look, everybody sacrifices so much to be a part of this stuff. Like you said, it's almost near impossible to get an independent film made. And it's just like, and actors struggle just to, just to have a moment, you know, yeah. to, to, to be able to do the thing they love. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, there must be some meaning. We Please tell me we're doing something yeah. of, of importance <laughs> or value. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be, I think it's, you know, I think life is like a long, soft opening to to what life is, mm. right? Like it's, it's if you want to be, if, if you want to be an, an actor and you don't give a shit about being famous, you're lucky because you probably aren't going to be. <laughs> so you enjoy the process, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're a director... And you don't give a shit about having successful films, but you just want to make art that connects with people. Well, you're in luck. Most films aren't successful, <laughs> right? Financially. So um, go make art for art's sake. Don't don't make art for uh, because it, you feel like it's um, going to fill a giant hole in your life. Well, this, right? can, this can actually go into the AI conversation because I feel like that's what's happening is it's de democratizing the ability to make, uh, to make stuff that I think can resonate because the quality is going to be there. I mean, some of the tools that we're seeing come out is really allowing for, to, to reduce, this is kind of what excites me because, you know, like I said, what we're finding is we're finding these, these these films that were made for no money and you know we we knew this person and we put it together and we had a house so we we wrote something around the house and it's like i'm just enjoying so much watching some of these films and and how 
just the independent spirit. And I feel like some of the stuff that's coming out is going to allow for more of that, you know? And that nobody cares now where you watch something, you know? It's like it doesn't have to be the theater. It can be on YouTube. It can be, you know, it can be anywhere on any platform. Uh, yeah, people are open. I mean, I love going to the movies. Like, I love going into the movie theater. I love big movies. Um, I can't wait to see Mission Impossible tomorrow. Like, I'm one of those guys. I love big movies. I love I, look, My favorite thing is taking the kids to the movies. It's, it's the experience. It's so awesome. It's the best. And I missed it so much. And, like, I watched, I watched Top Gun Maverick six times at the movie theater. <laughs> I'm that guy, right? Um, I took my daughter three times. She loved it. <laughs> Um, I, I love, I love that movie. Um, it's a story of redemption and grief at the core. Like, I, I think people think about it as a fighter pilot movie and like, you know, rah, rah, rah America, but that story is about acceptance and grief and loss. And that's the film that we needed during the pandemic. And I think that like, I think I personally think it was the best film of the year, but, uh, I'll, I'll probably be one of 10 people who think that, um, but I, uh, I think AI, so AI, so I'm, I'm working with a company called Storia that is, um, uh, what, what Storia does. So these uh, engineers that I've known, so I've, I've worked with companies like Google, Caltech and things like that. So part of, part of my journey as a filmmaker is like working in education, telling people stories in education. And I, it's allowed me to like really connect with a lot of really interesting people in the tech industry, but also in like the behavioral science industry. I'm, I'm kind of like obsessed about, um, I'm obsessed about psychology and mental health and all those things. Like I take psychology courses for fun and I had written during the pandemic, a film about memories and the use of AI um, to help us erase and replace memories. And the, the script is called Arcadia. And um, I had two friends who were, one was a Google engineer work, working with Google's AI uh, tool, and another one worked with um, uh, Alexa's AI voice user interface, which is the stuff that you interact at home with, right? And say, hey, Alexa, do this or whatever. Hey, Google, whatever. Um, so uh, they came to me like uh, late last year and said, we have this really interesting thing that is like you could type in um, uh, a prompt and it'll create these boards, these storyboards for a story. And it was it was a Rick and Morty tool. So you guys know the yeah, yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. They would they would put in a, a prompt like, okay, Rick and Morty go to outer space. Well, the AI tool would tell a whole story about Rick and Morty going to outer space and finding oil or whatever. And uh, we started talking and they developed this with you know some of my guidance, they developed this tool, which is storia.ai. And what it does is you can have a script and you can, it's in the beta version. Anybody could sign up for it. You could, you write a script and you input the script 10 pages at a time into um, this AI tool. Now, I think the hardest thing for a director to do is to communicate his, her, or their vision to investors, to directors, to collaborators, anybody, what their vision is. Because often your vision, your access to imagery is derivative. Like I want a film to look like Jaws, but I don't want it to look like Jaws. I want it to look like a seven, 19, 1979 film, um, but I want to combine that with like David Fincher's Gone Girl, okay? So that's, how do you do that? 
you can't. What do you you do? Screen grabs from Jaws and David Fincher. Yeah, and no. I, always, I always have a problem with that because it's like, yeah, you've grabbed you've grabbed some of the best imagery from some of the best films. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can make those. You know, like exactly. Yeah. And and I think the problem is that there's a limitation to what storyboard artists can do too, because when you tell a storyboard artist you want something to look like it, or you you hire a like a scene artist or a, like a VFX artist to create a scene, it's still going through their, their human mind. And well, and I mean like Rid Ridley Scott, I mean, he, he storyboards almost to a T every single frame, you know? And so that he already knows, he already has the film put together, you know? Right. I mean, that doesn't sound like very much fun, but uh, it's, that's, it's his thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's his thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but like it, it's, the, what this tool does is like it will interpret your script and then based off of the inputs that you put into it, like uh, Jaws, yeah, Jaws yeah. Plus, whatever, it will interp interpret it and then give you a version of what your script could look like with uh, it looks like Jaws plus uh, Gone Girl or, you know, whatever Fincher film that you Dude, crazy. So what is really cool about it is that then – it will give you sort of like a scene of what, like what it can look like. Okay. Then you could go into it and start adjusting it in, in little details. So each scene or each sort of like patina or frame that you want to create, it's not a real storyboard shot by shot. You can do it that way. It's a little laborious and it's very early in its stages, but what it really gives you is if you tweak it and get it really fine tuned, to a point where it's like, okay, this is my vision. It's unlike anything that's really out there, but it's also familiar. Um, it's not derivative of me pulling screen grabs from films that, uh, you know, Spielberg is shot or David Fincher shot, but this is what I want it to look like. You have a lighthouse now, now for everybody to collaborate with. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of the AI. It's not a threat. It's the kid down the block from me who says, I have a vision for a film. How do I get it made? This, you, he could put, she, they could put their script into this thing and say, here, this is what I want it to look like. Yeah. This is as close as I could get it to look like. Do you believe in my vision? That to me is real power for people who don't have power. Well, no. And then you, right? have, then you have a kid that is really good and understands photography and, and cameras. And he's able to say, I think I can create that. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, then, you, exactly. then you have a group, you have a group of friends that are able to, to make something and put it out on the internet. And people are like, whoa, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's amazing. Exactly. And I think the misunderstanding about AI is that everybody, to me, AI is like, it's like fire, right? When we were humans and we first saw fire, we were fucking freaked out by it. It scared us. It burnt us. Uh, we didn't know how to control it. Um, and it could, it could run wild everywhere, right? It could burn down a whole forest. And I think that's how we feel about AI right now. And I, I totally see the concerns of it for writers and actors, you know, even directors and even in post-production, there are going to be efficiencies that AI is going to afford us. But the most efficient, inefficient thing about filmmaking is filmmaking. It's super inefficient. It takes too much time. It takes too much money. It takes too many people to do something that should be really simple. And I think AI is going to like, will it take away people's jobs? I think, yes, I think it will take away people's jobs. I think it's especially 
when it comes to post-production. I think AI is going to eliminate uh, assistant editor jobs. That That's a problem, I think, because it's going to end up but collating. Just, but just like the internet, it's going to create new things that are going to be needed to get done, and you're going to adjust your tools. Product, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it'll create new jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the internet I, created a whole just, you know, e-commerce. I mean, it just created a whole new world, you know, where where people can make cash from anywhere in the world. I mean, I think that it, it's crazy. We, yeah, right. we, we can't we can't even fathom the opportunities that it's going to create. I mean, from an actor's point of view, though, like I saw, what was it last year? They did a whole scene. And it was completely AI, and we couldn't tell was it a real person or not. Yeah, but I think people. I think I think here's okay. This is my optimistic, the most optimistic. You're gonna is that I I hope that all these tools will happen, all these efficiencies will happen, but it might shed a light of what it can't do, which is the humanity, and that right. humanity takes a, a step up, and people start valuing it more because it's the one we start cherishing it because it is the one thing that is not being automated or, or you know, and that you start seeing, it, it, you know, it's like, it's what I do. It's like, I look for the humanity. And I mean, I tell people all the time, like, what do you do? I'm like, we buy humanity. We, we try to find, mm-hmm. we're paying you for your humanity mm-hmm. to bring, we're not paying you to play a character. I'm paying you to to go through this this moment, mm-hmm. you know, and, and see the human spirit, you know? Right. And I think that's like yeah, one AI, of the fears, AI, though, can, to, of losing that. AI doesn't know the truth. Yeah. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. Right. You, 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 each of you know what your personal truth is, right? So I know what my personal truth is. AI doesn't know what its personal truth is. It has no self, right? So what you said, John, I totally agree with you. It is, it is going to be, it'll be a totally new, it'll be, it's a land grab right now. Think of it as like, you know, people in Oklahoma grabbing all the land they could possibly get from the Native Americans. That's what's happening in AI. Everybody's staking out a claim for what their AI tool can can do. And at what cost, I think is a question. And I think for actors, it is, it is a scary proposition that their likeness could be used in a way that they don't intend to. And I think that's part of the conversations that are going on in Hollywood right now in regards to like, what are the limits and boundaries? Right. The truth is, is that these tools aren't that advanced. They will get really good really fast. And there do needs to be some boundaries and guardrails on it. But I, like human beings, I want to see the best in it, <laughs> not the worst and I think the best version of it is that we're going to actually see a lot of people who haven't had the opportunity to articulate their vision because they haven't had the means, they haven't had the tools to do it, to be able to articulate their vision in a way that was unimaginable three years ago. Like, I, it, it, it is going to be uh, revolutionary, and it should be. Change is inevitable. That's what I've always, I've always said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've never – it's, it, you know – I have, I've had a pager, I've had a cell phone, I'm going to have wear, I'm going to have wearable tech. I'm going, you know, going to have a brain chip. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hologram. I'm going to be a deep fake. It's just how we we go. It's just how we roll. I mean, Darwinism was in effect. Now it's a technological revolution, you know? So I, 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 and I also think the creativity for our space, for us, like, uh, having these new tools is exciting to see how we can play around with it, what we can create, what we can make, you know? Like and and not having to 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 go 
raise three million dollars to, to whether it's just a, a, a ten minute short or a five minute thing that then inspires a larger, bigger story, you know, but I was able to accomplish it to a way that people can, it can really affect people, you know, yeah. like I'm able to do the editing and the CGI and all that stuff from, from these tools for no money and, th and then put something out into the world where they're like, whether it's a minute long and it really, it really resonates, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I'm, ex I'm, ex I'm excited and I hope that we take this time as humans to be like, hey, we are special. <laughs> There is something unique about us. Let's 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 you know, like going to a live show or or going to a live play, like you know that those experiences we're gonna, I think, I hope, hold more value. Yeah, I agree. All right. Look, I'm open. Yeah. <laughs> I just have. I just have. Look, I'm just being honest. Like you know, it's scary. You, you don't know, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the saying. It's the the fear of the unknown. But you know, you try not to be fearful. Like again, I'm open to learning more. I'm I'm never not trying to learn. But you know, it's just when you hear so many different sides or whatever. And again, like you said, it's still very new. So we just don't know. But yeah, I mean, hopefully. What you say is true. It holds true. I mean, I feel like eventually it will, right? Because everything new comes out and it's always some sort of fear to it. And then we finally get a grasp of it and like, okay, now everybody wants in. Like the internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it used to be like this huge, gigantic thing. And then it was such a big deal. And they finally got scaled down where it can be inside homes, you know, and then having a computer because I didn't have a computer in my house growing up. It was such a big deal. Well, maybe we got one like my last year in high school, but we still had dial-up. So kind of like you. Yeah. You know, eventually it'll... It'll have good. It'll have bad. Yeah. It'll it'll be a mix. Yeah. As everything is in life. But, yeah, yeah. Life's full of likes and dislikes, yeah. right? Like it's what makes us uncomfortable, we resist. And what makes us feel comfortable, we want to hold on to. And uh, neither of those things usually make us particularly happy. Well, mm -hmm. on that note, yeah, awesome job, dude. That was yeah. fun. Yeah, that was great. I learned so much. I did too. <laughs> what did you learn? Well, I I learned about the history of Oak Oak Hill, Oak Lawn, Oak Lawn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, your your uh, your I journey. Yeah. I, I didn't know so much about your journey. Yeah. You know, and, and how much of Lost in the Sun. Uh, and how much you were going through at that time, and how much that was a reflection of your story, and 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 the themes that that correlate to your life, like you know, I've I learned I learned, and what just you know, just what an awesome human you are. Thanks, man. Yeah, I I'm I'm just grateful for the opportunity to share my story. I think everybody just wants to tell their story, right? Yeah. And uh, one way or another, we all find ways to do it. From the guy who like like mows lawn for a living maybe he's obsessed with like geometric shapes and he just wants to like create like these beautiful geometric shapes and in, in the lawn everybody wants to tell their story right it's like you and, said earlier we're all connected we're all interconnected we are we all connected we could see that right now in hollywood we're all connected and i think the people who uh don't believe that that we're all connected um and that their worlds are really small and contracted. Um, we'll find out that, you know, that's no way to live, right? Yeah. Cool. Thank you, dude. Thanks so much for joining us yep. in the room. Is that how we ended? I don't know how we ended. No, we just is ended. That, this is what we're going to end. That's what I'm ending it today. That's how <laughs> I'm doing it. Awesome. It. Yep. Thanks, guys. Cool, man. <laughs>